Joe, how you doing? People expect that sometimes from a New Yorker. I don't actually have a Bronx accent. Uh, I'm actually not from New York like most people. Um, I'm an interloper in New York, but I, I do bring you greetings from uh, the greatest city in the world, uh, New York City. And uh, my colleagues at the King's College, we're right down there on Wall Street. I've been the president of the King's College there in Lower Manhattan uh, for about four years now. And uh, when the announcement was made that I was going to be the president, I was reminded this morning of a girl's Instagram story of uh, something that someone of the, from the New York media said. They said, the 11th doctor appointed sixth president of the King's College in New York City. And I was like, yes, a Doctor Who reference on my first day in office. So that felt like a win. Um, <clears throat> but it is good to be here. I love Austin, Texas. Um, I was, yes, I was down there on South Congress today. I went to Uncommon Objects today. I didn't see anybody famous, but uh, someone did say, hey, did you speak at the Stone today? And I said, rock and roll. So this place is famous. Thank you so much for letting me be here today. We have a lot of students from Texas that come to the King's College in New York City. And I find that Texans especially uh, do well in the New York City marketplace because they show up, you know, amidst all the you know, super tall skyscrapers and the canyon of buildings, and they kind of look around and say, this is a nice little town you got here. You know, biggest Texas mentality really actually does go over very well in New York City. And uh, just so you know where to locate us, our campus uh, is on Broadway at Exchange Place, which means our uh, building backs up to the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, we are in the same neighborhood where the American Revolution happened. I call it Colonial Disneyland. Um, there are memories of the founding fathers everywhere. Right across the street is Trinity Church Wall Street. If that doesn't ring a bell, maybe National Treasure will. That's where National Treasure ends. Trust me, I've been down into the basement looking for the college endowment. It's not there, but uh, it is a famous place. We have lots of events there. And of course, that cemetery is called the Cemetery of the Patriots, six signers of the Declaration of Independence there. And the newly re-notorious Alexander Hamilton is buried there. So there's now a pilgrimage now uh, of people coming by his sarcophagus there. And uh, one of the things that really motivates me as the president of the King's College in New York City, one of the things that I am trying to do there, but I want to see more broadly, is for the next generation of believers really to rise up to their full height and to become the sorts of people that will take their place at the vanguard of culture rather than shrinking back away from it. I find that we live in a time in our society in which uh, Christians have adopted uh, a negative, sour, downcast, kind of sad sack attitude toward culture. And we actually are tempted to shrink back in the shadows rather than wade in at our full height into the heart 
of the cultural conversation and to really have those difficult conversations with people who profoundly disagree with us about things. That's a good, you know, when your mom used to tell you to brush your teeth and you had all these habits, it's good muscle memory to be juxtaposed to people who really don't see things the way you do. And I find this, you know, on a routine basis, uh, right there being the president of, of Kings, um, I was talking to a New York Times reporter a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he said, now, at King's College, he said, uh, is that the same institution, is your institution the same one that Alexander Hamilton went to? And I said, wow, that's a really good memory. Uh, that's, that's excellent. And by the way, I'm so grateful for Hamilton the Musical because there are several references to King's College in it. And thanks to Google SEO analytics, people go to, you know, and type in King's College New York City and we are the ones that pop up now. So we get a lot of looks that way, um, you know, because there are references in Hamilton. I got a scholarship to King's College, right? So people think it's us, but it's actually not. I said, no, actually, that King's College went on to become Columbia University because after the American Revolution, no one wanted to be called King's College anymore, so they had to change the name. I said, actually, that was King's College. Uh, our name is different. We're the King's College. And uh, he said, the King's College? He said, what king are you talking about? And I said, Jesus? And then all of a sudden... You are in an entirely different conversation. It kind of blew his mind a little bit to think that there was a, you know, fully accredited, elite college in the financial district that was sending people into journalism and business and finance and technology companies and so forth, but with people that took faith seriously. That's where we need to be is in those kinds of conversations. We ought to be happy as a clam splashing about in the belly of the beast. As one interviewer said to me in a recent uh, podcast that I was doing, one of my favorite theologians, Timothy George, he said, now, he said, in King's, the King's College, he said, that's, you're in New York City, right? And I said, yes. He said, Manhattan. I said, right. He said, Wall Street. I said, correct. He said, you know, that's a little different the most Christian colleges and universities, most of which are located about 75 miles from any known sin. So what you do is you find out where culture is and then you drive about 100 miles in the opposite direction and you talk about culture. You critique it, you opine about it, but it's over there. Now this is not a criticism of you, but I find a lot of people like me who are sort of egghead academics, Christian leaders, theologians, talk this way about culture as though culture is something that's over there in the, other in the next county over and our job is to stand as it were like Gandalf upon the parapets of Helm's Deep thundering down from our mountaintops at the orcs down there in culture. Very pious, very ponderous, very negative, wagging our bony fingers. And I do not think that that is a biblical attitude 
Because when I read my Bible and I see the Apostle Paul standing on the Areopagus, which is this kind of amazing rock feature in Athens, Greece, you can still go there today, but because it's been climbed so many times, it's actually slippery, so be careful, you know, when you go. But you can go to Mars Hill, you can go to the Areopagus, and this is like, this was like the ancient equivalent of of Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park in London, where the, the philosophers gathered to debate all of the newest ideas, and the Apostle Paul stepped into that scene and he had read all of the philosophy of his day. He was quoting their own philosophers like Epimenides and others by memory and from memory. But there's this interesting part where the Apostle Paul says, God is not far from any of And I think if it were some of our Christian leaders today and theologians and pastors, what we hear is, God is not far from any of you. That is not what Paul says. He says, God is not far from any of us. He includes himself and these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as a part of a conversation that we are all in together. It's us, not them. Not us versus them. It's just plain old us. And we need to get back to that. Because I fear that one of the biggest barriers that we have to engaging with people in our society is that we have this notion of opposition, like we're on completely different teams. And I think maybe part of the reason why they think that about us is because we first thought it about them. People live up to what they think their expectations are of them. You know, I get a little weary with this uh, talk of cultural engagement. We should engage the culture. We are engaging culture. Again, like culture is something that's over here. We pious Christians are removed from it. Well, I'm sorry. As, as my friend David Dark once said, you want to engage culture? Too late. Culture has already engaged you. You are swimming in it. We're reading the same stuff. We're on the same social media. We're watching the same movies. We're reading the same magazines. We're going to the same university. It's us, it is us all of the way down. And that should frame the way we think about living and bearing witness. And I find this to be the case. In New York City, you know, I hear again, I hear, oh, all of these secular atheists out there that are opposed to any sort of God talk. I live in Manhattan. I don't find this to be true. I find people incredibly open to talk about all kinds of stuff. Like, I've had this conversation many times at parties or on the subway. Inevitably, it gets to, they say, what do you do? I tell them, to King's College. I give my line about Jesus being the king. They're like, oh, wait. And And so they, and then... Eventually, they get to, wait, are you like a Christian? And then once they get over the initial shock, I don't know if it's the bow tie or whatever, but 
wait, you're a Christian? And then all of a sudden, yes, I'm super Christian. Like, I believe in the whole shooting match. Like, you know, sin and death and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his literal ascension into heaven. I actually believe Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. The whole shooting match. And they're like, whoa. You know, like, they're actually curious. They, they, they want to know more about it. They may not be willing to accept a system or a nice tidy set of religious principles, but I do find them incredibly open to the mysterious, the magical, the transcendent, because this hard, cold, scientific naturalism leaves people wanting something more. And we're not gonna get to them if we have this attitude of us versus them. Now let me dive in a little bit deeper from a biblical perspective on what I think is a a more accurate theology of culture. And um, I've been thinking about this lately because I have been paying attention over the last couple of years to what I've actually seen the leaders of culture in New York City appreciate and what it is that actually gives us a seat at the table. Uh, For example, I was uh, at a party and this uh, woman came up to me and she said, someone told me you're the president of the King's College. And I said, yavol. And she said, uh, you know, we've just hired our, our second employee who's a graduate of your college. And this person is not a person of faith. And, and she said, you want to know why I like graduates from the King's College? And I said, please tell me. I could probably use it in a brochure or something like that. And what she said kind of knocked me out. She said, they show up on time. They're sober when they get there. They're really hardworking. They're super smart. But she said, here's the X factor. They don't have an entitlement mentality like the kids from the Ivy League schools do. Whoa. In other words, if they have the chops, that's a big if, and I'm going to come back to that. If they have the chops and they can compete with the kids from the Ivy League schools and they have a servant's attitude toward not being in opposition, what we find in the Bible is that whenever a king or a suzerain or a pharaoh is mentioned, the attitude is, let's bless these people. Let us lift them up. Let us seek our place at the table to lift all up at the same time. And that is the story time and time again of the young men and the young women who took it upon themselves not to shrink away in the shadows over here, hunkering down in their holy huddle, 75 miles from any known sin, but instead going right to the heart of the system and seeking to be a leader in that environment. Chief amongst these, I'm going to give two today, 
is uh, the Joseph narrative. Now, for those of you not familiarized with that story, um, for a little, you know, fun uh, sidebar, uh, if you want to get caught up on the biblical narrative, there is a Broadway musical for that too, right? Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? I look handsome, I look smart, I am a walking work of art, such a stunning coat of many colors, how I love my coat of many colors. Okay, all right, all right, that's something you can research later. But Joseph is remembered as one of the patriarchs. He was the favorite son. His brothers did not like him because he got more attention and more things, so... They decided to fake his death, scapegoat him, throw him down in a pit, and he's sold into slavery. Now, if anybody could have been a whiner, if anybody could have been a sad sack about their position, it would have been Joseph. Joseph could have been like all these other Christians I'm hearing from in culture, all these Christian leaders that are very dour. I call it the Eeyore worldview, by the way. Any Winnie the Pooh fans out there? Anybody, any fan? Okay, good, all right, this is gonna work. A.A. Milne, right, Winnie the Pooh, right? There are a lot of bright and colorful characters in Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, you know, others, Tigger, right? (laughs) Eeyore always sees the dark thundercloud behind every silver lining. Eeyore, I can't find my tail. Eeyore, Eeyore, looks like we're never gonna get home right now. I hear Christians talk like that. Eeyore, the culture doesn't like us. Eeyore, we're in an age of exile and persecution. It's like sixth grade middle school cafeteria, nobody will sit with me kind of stuff. That is the biggest bologna sandwich going right now. Joseph could have had the Eeyore worldview. By the way, I heard that there's a hippy-dippy Eeyore's birthday party somewhere here in Austin, right? Got to come back for that, all right? Uh, Let me know when that is, because I will show up, you know, and um, we will all enjoy Eeyore for one night and one night only. Um, Joseph was thrown down in a pit. He was scapegoated again and again, first by his brothers, then by his slave owner, Potiphar, and his wife. And yet, here was his attitude. And one of my favorite biblical texts, this has actually sort of become my new life verse. Everybody has to have a life verse, right? I feel like Genesis 39, 22, hide it in your heart. Write it in the front of your Bibles. You don't even have them. They're all digital now. Yeah, please take out your electronic soul-molesting devices. And... Um, <laughs> Turn in them to Genesis 39, 22. Now, you don't have to actually do that, but because uh, I'm going to paraphrase it for you in the NTT, the New Thornbury translation. <clears throat> uh, but basically, the gist of it is this. Joseph is in prison. He could just lay down and die. He could be like George Michael Bluth. You know, you know that. All right, thank you. Thank you. Somebody got the Arrested Development reference there. Okay. Um. <laughs> Genesis thirty nine twenty two says, if anything got done in that place, it was because Joseph saw to it that it got done. Even in the worst possible circumstances, 
Joseph understood that he could lead. No matter how far down he had gone, he was going to see that the place that he found himself in was better, that it was organized, and that he took leadership, and he rose to the top of wherever he was. No Eeyore, no downcast, no sad sack, no wah. He looked for the opportunity to show that the God of Israel was real, and he waited in. And notice, you know, on the one hand, we have the Eeyore types, like, let's retreat from culture, let's go slide under a rock, let's go tuck our tail between our legs and hide, you know, until the war is over, right? You got those people. And then on the other hand, you got the opposite problem, which is a very triumphalistic Christianity, where we are going to be the redeemers of culture. We have transformation on our mind, transforming culture. We are the transformers. <laughs> you know, uh, okay, maybe that'll happen. Rock on, you know? But when I look at Joseph, Joseph actually didn't try to transform culture. He didn't try to change Egypt. As a matter of fact, Joseph is a little bit controversial. In the Jewish tradition, for example, Psalm 78 kind of gets into this a little bit, Joseph's heirs do not get the same level of blessing because Joseph didn't really look that Jewish in his context. That's why his brothers, if you read on in the story, when his brothers finally are desperate, they're dying of a famine back in Canaan, the homeland. They come to Egypt. Joseph's now become the prime minister of Egypt. He's risen to the top because he can interpret the dreams of the king, of the pharaoh, for the nation. When his brothers show up, they find him and they don't even recognize him. Why? He didn't look Jewish at all. Joseph, when you read on later, he was when he died, he was embalmed in the Egyptian fashion. He gave his children Egyptian names. He adopted and celebrated the best of Egyptian culture. He talked like an Egyptian, and you know where I'm going. <laughs> he walked like an Egyptian. He embraced Egypt as his culture without giving up on his faith in the God of Israel. Did the Pharaoh repent, pray to receive Christ and kneel down and repent and believe? No. Nothing changed. As a matter of fact, once people forgot about Joseph, that's the way Exodus starts. There came a time when the Pharaoh knew not Joseph. Then God's people were in trouble. But even though Joseph wasn't a transformer, here's what he did. By immersing himself in the culture, by rising to the top of the culture, it says in the narrative of the Bible that Joseph was in a position of power in culture 
that allowed the people of God to escape the famine for a generation. Maybe that's our job. Maybe we're not going to turn everything around and go back to these halcyon days in which, you know, people, oh, we used to live in this culture that really appreciated, you know, all of these things that we believe in. And isn't it sad that it's gone so far down the tubes? Yeah, well, maybe some of that's sad, but here's the story. That may never come back. But what we can do is keep the people of God in the game and wait until the time is right for the light of Jesus to start shining again in a different way. Whatever Joseph found in front of him to do, he made sure that it got done. He was a gamer. He was a competitor in the marketplace. You know, I was talking with Justin here on your staff about this earlier this afternoon. I have the fear that a right teaching and preaching about the grace of God, salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, in Christ alone. I believe it, right? But we have to be careful that we don't develop a slacker attitude, that everything in life is just all grace. No, God expects you to bring your A-game in culture. No slackerism. You know, when we talk about who is at the vanguard, who's leading culture today, a century ago, it was almost all, in this country, it was almost all people of faith even though they may not have been completely orthodox. But you think about people like John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. For all of their foibles and for all of their faults, they were animated by Judeo-Christian principles. They were at the front. Here's a challenge. Who on Team Jesus is at the front of the pack right now? Are our people the leaders of tech? Are we at the front of the queue in terms of entrepreneurial ideas? Are we coming up with, as my friend Peter Thiel has said, are we moving from zero to one? You know, Peter Thiel started PayPal with Elon Musk, and he said, what's happened to culture? You know, we were promised flying cars by when I was a kid, and all we wound up with was 140 characters on Twitter. Why are we not making more progress? Maybe it's because the religious and moral imagination is no longer being stoked. People are out of ideas. Who's going to fill in that vacuum? It should be Team Jesus. Which leads to my second biblical illustration and analogy, which is uh, the story that is told in the book of Daniel. There are these Jewish boys that are carted off from Jerusalem. The Babylonian Empire conquers Jerusalem. The Jewish people, actually the Jewish leaders, the people, the elites of culture, are sent into exile, into Babylon. And um, here they are, these young Jewish boys, Daniel, and there are three other boys that are mentioned, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. You might know them better by their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
when that story gets taught in church, we focus on the faith element, right? The story goes that Nebuchadnezzar lifted up this big idol and said to these Jewish boys, bow down. They did not bow down to the idol. They refused to eat things that were not in the Jewish diet, right? They were veggie, right? They went vegan. They wouldn't eat the pork, right? Have you seen the little piggies with their piggy eyes? You can see they're not for dinner with their piggy wives. That's a George Harrison song for those of you that didn't know. Um, That was my George Harrison impression. Okay. Um, (laughs) they, They kept the faith. And that's what we focus on. They went into the fiery furnace. They didn't bow down to the idol, so Nebuchadnezzar, the king, threw them into the furnace to incinerate them. And as the gospel quartet sang as I was growing up, they didn't bend, they didn't bow, they didn't burn. They survived the fire, according to the Bible, thanks to a strange fourth man in the fire. So we talk about that, wonderful. We talk about Daniel in the lion's den, right? He kept the faith, wonderful. But there's another text that we don't focus on that I think is equally important, which is Daniel 1.4. Daniel 1.4 says that those Jewish boys mastered the wisdom of the Babylonians. That's just as important as the fact that they kept the faith. They mastered the wisdom of the Babylonians. In other words, when the top officials of this new pagan world in which they were living looked out to see who the best people were on the field for different positions. They would say, these Jewish kids are a little bit weird, but they're the best. Put them in charge. And the heirs of Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah became the ministers of finance and of culture and of government for generations, even though their faith was looked down upon because they were the best. They stood at the heart of culture and flourished. How do I know this is true? Well, it's actually something God tells them to do. If you read on further, in the book of Jeremiah, many of us have a favorite Bible verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plan, if you've had a high school yearbook, you've gotten this somewhere, right? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and to give you a future and a hope. It's a great verse, very happy verse, right? What is the context, though, of that passage? It is a letter to the exiles in Babylon, and here's what the Lord God says to them. Go to the heart of the pagan city... Sink down your roots, plant vineyards, start businesses, take your place in that city, for in the flourishing of the city, you will find your own happiness. Now that is not a theology of retreat, that is a theology of being part of us. And when you are part of us, that is the best position to let the light shine. I once heard um, one of my favorite preachers, uh, he was standing in Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City, and a little kid said, 
uh, Dr. Tool, who are the saints? And I loved his immediate response. He said, oh, Johnny, they're the people that the light shines through. I love that. Where's the best place for the light to shine through? In the heart of the city, in the middle of things, not at the outskirts. And so, you might find it interesting that by the time the Persian Empire had taken over, they defeated the Babylonian Empire, and there's this famous moment in the Bible where King Cyrus, the new Persian king, issues a decree for the Jewish people to re-inhabit, to resettle Israel, to go back to Jerusalem. He says, you can go back, resettle Jerusalem, rebuild your temple, rebuild your walls around your city. Guess what? The people that were living in Babylon, who were God's people, the Jews, did not want to go back home to Jerusalem. They were flourishing where they were. As a matter of fact, it was kind of a ragtag outfit that went back. And the new temple kind of looked a little honky-tonk, if you do much reading about it. And furthermore, the guy that the Persian Empire, Jewish leader, that they selected to go back be the governor of Judah during this time to oversee some of these rehabilitation efforts of Jerusalem was a guy named Zerubbabel. Okay, now I love that. It's a good biblical name. I noticed that some, you know, Christian families are now trying to, you know, mine obscure Old Testament names, right? You know, Jedediah, Zechariah, you know, or use it. How about Zerubbabel? There's a, there's a baby name idea for you. I haven't heard it yet, but it's yours for the taking. You can be the first one to have a child named Zerubbabel in a very long time. But Zerubbabel is the governor, he goes back, and then mysteriously in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is a story about how they resettle Jerusalem and then they're gonna build the wall, you know, around Jerusalem, which I'm glad that that's in the book of Nehemiah because what would pastors do for capital campaigns if they didn't have the book of Nehemiah? You know, they wouldn't even know. You know, we're gonna build a wall. I love that this is meeting in a high school that you're not trying to use Nehemiah to build your own wall, right? Okay, all right, that's a little sidebar, no extra charge, good on you, right? In Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel just kind of disappears in the middle of the narrative. Where'd he go? What happened to that guy? What happened to him? He went back to Babylon. He didn't want to stay in Jerusalem. We have people that are pining away for this time in the past where Christians had something that they don't feel like they have now. Forget it. It's like what Cornell West said about breakdancing when you're 75. You could do it when you're 15. You can't do it anymore. It's over. Maybe that part of our life as Christians is over. But if I don't miss my guess, we have an opportunity to plant our flag for Jesus and the gospel in the middle of the city, and if we have an us mentality rather than an us versus them, we have an opportunity to be around, to have a seat at the table when the various different experiments against reality in our culture run their course. 
Now, if we don't like the way things are going, we can express our views, but we might not turn it all around. But we have an opportunity to be Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. I think that's what Christianity and the church represents. Here's my little metaphor. Did anybody read Shel Silverstein when they were growing up? If not, you should judge your parents. Okay, all right. In The Giving Tree, there's this big, beautiful, leafy tree, fruit-bearing, and there's a little boy, and the little boy grows up, and he's swinging on the branches of the tree and loving life, and he and the tree are best friends, and then the little boy grows older, and uh, he says, well, I don't really want to swing on your branches anymore. The tree's so happy to see him. He's like, no, I don't want to play anymore. He said, I, what I really want is money because I, uh, I want to buy things. And the tree says, well, I don't have any money to give you, but I do have fruit. I have apples, so I will give you all my apples, and you can take them, and you can sell them, and that way you can get money. And the little boy goes away, and he's happy. And then a couple of years later, the little boy comes back, and he says, uh, I'm back. And the tree says, oh, yes, you want to play? Do you want to swing on my branches like the old days? And the little boy says, no, I'm not really interested in doing that. What I want to do now is I want to see the world. I want to go sailing. And the tree says, well, I don't have a boat, but I do have these beautiful limbs. Why don't you cut them off and make a boat for yourself? And the little boy does, and he sails around the world in the boat made from the branches of the tree. Time passes and the boy comes back. The tree's so happy to see him. He says, well, I don't have branches to swing on anymore, but I'm so happy to see you. And the little boy says, now a man, young man. He's like, well, you know, I'm ready. I've seen the world. Now I'm ready to settle down. I want a house. And the tree says, well, I don't have a house to give you, but you can chop down my trunk and use the lumber to build a home. And the little boy does. So all that is left from the standpoint of the reader looking at the book is that the tree is now just a stump. Nothing more to give. Seems like a pretty dire situation for the tree. But then we find in the final scene the little boy who's become a young man, then a man, has now become a very old man. And he comes back to the tree with a crutch in his hand, and the tree's so happy to see him. And he says to the old man, I've given you everything for your happiness. I don't have anything left to give. All I am now is just a stump. And the old man has run the course of all of the desires and the lusts and the passions of life, and he says, that's okay. I just need a place to rest. And the little boy and the tree were happy once again. Friends, here's the parable. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is that tree. For centuries, for millennia almost, the Jewish Christian tradition has been a gift-bearing Leafy green plant to culture. Giving, giving, giving. People aren't even aware of all of the gifts that have come from basically believing the Bible. Democracy, free markets, 
constitutionalism, limited powers in government, a belief that human beings cannot build a utopia so we have to put guardrails around our leaders so that, as Lord Acton said, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. All of that flows from the Bible. People don't see it. But sooner or later, the experiments against reality will run their course and what people will desperately want in that moment is shalom, is peace, is rest. And if we do our jobs the right way, it will be the people of God sitting at the center of culture to say, here's a place to rest. But we have to be there when that request comes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who many of you have heard about, some of you might not know, was a brilliant pastor and theologian who at the rise of Nazi power in Germany had a chance to accept a cushy job in New York City at Union Seminary and be a professor and escape the horrors of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. But he took the last boat out before the war began, before they closed down entry into Germany because he knew if I do not suffer with the German people during this great time of trial, when we finally defeat Hitler, I will have no place at the table for the future of the German people. So he takes the last boat out. He gets involved undercover working for the German equivalent of the CIA in an assassination plot to kill Hitler. That was that Tom Cruise movie a couple years ago, right? They didn't put Bonhoeffer in it, <laughs> right? It's because he's a Scientologist, okay, all right? I mean, we don't expect Bonhoeffer to be in that movie, but he was there. He gets arrested. He's put in prison. And eventually he's sent to a concentration camp where he is hung to death for being involved in this plot to kill Hitler and essentially for his faith writing to his best friend, Eberhard Bethke, from prison. Here's someone who is paid with his, is paying with his life for what he believes, says this. The Christian should not be cloistered and secluded in his holy huddle, but rather the Christian should be in the thick of his foes, at the center of the village from which the powers go out. That's our job. As my friend William McKinley Blackford, who is a pastor in Louisville, great preacher, has put it very pithily. He's pithy, poignant, and trenchant. He has said, You've got to get your hallelujah to line up with your do you <laughs> How is your do you Question. And I'll end with this. Would you be 
Could you be, I, I want to say my neighbor. Uh, I love Mr. Rogers. Thank God for Mr. Rogers. This is a holy moment. Would you be, have you ever grown anything in the garden of your mind? Um, you can grow ideas in the garden of your mind. Would you be, could you be a Genesis 39, 22 kind of Christian? Could you be a Daniel 1, 4 type of Christian? Think about it. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we began this time together remembering a prayer from the great church reformer Martin Luther. Lord, I would like to close by remembering another one of your servants, another Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, who in his letter to white pastors in the South, writing from a Birmingham jail, said the following. If today's church cannot recapture the spirit of sacrificial Christianity of the early Christian movement, it will have no right to be regarded as anything but an irrelevant social club for the 20th century. Lord, we don't want to be an irrelevant social club. We want to be the church contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, spreading the love of Jesus at all costs for all people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.